3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. It is the 23rd of July. Good morning, Priya. How are you going? Morning, Carly. I'm going all right. How are you? Oh, you know. Uh, response is the same every week um, under these restrictions. But, mm-hmm. you know, this week we see, again, the Victorian government um, putting in place some more restrictions that are going to affect, um, you know, who society marginalises the most. So that's great um, now that we see these $200 fines for people who are out in public not wearing masks. Absolutely. And coupled with the fantastic announcement from the federal government today that the rate of job seeker will be, oh, not today, sorry, today as we're recording, but uh, the federal rate of job seeker will be decreasing, um, which is fantastic, uh, makes uh, living just above the poverty line uh, something that will be the condition again for so many people across the country. Mm. Hmm. Okay, big show for you. So up first, um, we're going to be hearing some more content from the Progress 2020 event. So we hear Imani Barbarin and Damien Griffs speaking at the Virtual Progress 2020 conference about vital lessons from the disability justice movement. Imani is a disability rights activist from the United States and Damien is a descendant of the Warami people and leading advocate for the human rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disabilities. And then we're going to head into a conversation that I had with Emma Russell, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, and Jill Faulkner, Manager of Women Transforming Justice, a program of Fitzroy Legal Service. And we speak about a new report, A Constellation of Circumstances, the Drivers of Women's Increasing Rates of Remand in Victoria. And this report urges a review of Victoria's strict bail laws stating that decreases in prisoner numbers observed during the COVID-19 pandemic should be sustained and extended into the future. And finally, we'll hear an interview that I did with Tabitha Lean, who's a Gunachamara woman currently living on Ghana land. She's a formerly incarcerated person and a very vocal advocate for incarcerated people. We've spoken with her before on the show in April, and she returns to speak with us about the dangers of COVID-19 in Australian prisons and the real urgent importance of abolition and decarceration across the country. All right. Um, so without further ado, we'll go to Kay Kelly with the news. Good morning. I'm Kate Kelly, and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Melbourne City Councillors will ask the Andrews government to dump its preferred site for a second safe injecting room in a vote that Greens councillors were forced to abstain from. The state government first announced its intention to trial a second injecting room last month and named Co Health Community Health Centre near the Queen Victoria Market as its preferred location. 
So the Melbourne City Council on Tuesday night agreed to write, uh, write to the Mental Health Minister Martin Foley and former police boss Ken Lay, who was leading the leading consultations, and urged them that the site be dropped from the government's plans because it is inappropriate and inadequate, they said. While a similar motion from Deputy Lord Mayor Aaron Wood was defeated last month, Lord Mayor Sally Capp, who had previously voted against him, seconded his motion on Tuesday, and it was carried unanimously. Greens councillors Cathy Oak and Rohan Leppert were forced to abstain despite voting against um, Councillor Wood's motion last month. And Victoria Police suspended or transferred 13 officers in connection with the leaked photographs of former AFL coach Dean Ladley. 53-year-old Ladley was arrested on May the 2nd from outside a home in St Kilda and charged with allegedly stalking a woman he had met on an online dating app, Tinder. A day later, mugshots and photos of Ladley dressed in a blonde wig and dress while in custody of the police were shared on social media. Though it was not clear whether Ladley identifies as transgender, equal rights activists condemned the leaking of the photographs for breaching privacy and for having transphobic overtones. Ladley's lawyer, Phil Dunn, had told the media that his client was devastated over the leaked photographs. Ladley was released on bail on May 11 to attend a rehab facility. So within days, the Victorian police suspended four police officers with pay, including Senior Constable Shane Reid. Commissioner of Victorian Police Shane Patton, who was then the de Deputy Commissioner, had said that a senior constable could be charged with criminal offences over the leaked photos under the provisions relating to unauthorised access to police information. And Victorian tenants can now access two free services to help them if they've fallen on hard times during the pandemic and need to get a rent reduction or to work out how to avoid eviction. Dear Landlord has relaunched with an additional service to guide tenants on their rights following the introduction of recent legislation to ban evictions and to provide a framework for rent reductions for struggling tenants. So Justice Connect Chief Executive Chris Povey said the compounding crisis of the bushfire and pandemic made it clear renters would need to help exercising their rights in their tenancies. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. Virtual Progress 2020 was an online social justice conference that took place on the 23rd and 24th of June this year, with a focus on planning actions to address racial and economic inequality. On Thursday Breakfast, we're playing you some highlights from the conference. This week, we'll hear from Imani Barbarin and Damien Griffiths, sharing lessons from the disability justice movement. First up, let's listen to Imani Barbarin. Imani is a disability rights and inclusion activist and speaker from the United States who uses her voice and social media platforms to create conversations engaging the disability community. Born with cerebral palsy, Imani often writes and uses her platform to speak from the perspective of a disabled black woman. In the last few years, she has created over a dozen trending hashtags that allow disabled people the opportunity to have their perspectives heard while forcing the world to take notice. Hashtag patients are not faking, hashtag things disabled people know, hashtag abled's are weird, and others each provide a window into disabled life while forming community. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and here's Imani Barbarin speaking at Virtual Progress 2020. Given the current moment that we're living in, I'm going to resist the urge to say something along the lines of uh, disability justice has never been more important than this moment. Um, to be honest, the disability justice has always been important. 
we're just now noticing it. Um, COVID-19 has really opened up all of society's ills. No matter where you live, we're looking at the ways in which people are marginalized and who who's given power to succeed, even when crises strike. Um, I, I started my blog in 2014, Crutches and Spice, as a way to really kind of see myself as a disabled Black person. Um, at the time, I didn't see it at all. I'd grown up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, hoping that somebody would look like me on TV. I used to write scripts or write myself into TV shows, um, thinking that I could be there one day. And representation has been lagging. But I really wanted to create the representation that I had so often desired growing up. And disability discrimination and racism starts from a very young age for Black disabled people. Um, when I was born, I was limp. Um, I couldn't move. I couldn't lift my head up. I couldn't move my legs. And my mother went around from doctor to doctor for two years as a Black woman, and nobody believed her. She she asked doctors. She got, asked nurses. She was asking everybody she could think of to say, my daughter needs a diagnosis. She needs services. She needs surgeries. Why can't I get them? Why can't I get what I need? And it has really been through a network of Black women that got me a diagnosis and got me the services that I need and I needed growing up. But the way that our society works is that if you want services as a Black disabled person, you're going to be going through schools that are in white, predominantly white areas. Um, so when I was in elementary school or primary school, um, I was bused to a school that was not in my district. My district was more Black and Brown people. I was, I was, bus to a school district that was mostly white and stayed in mostly white schools for much of my life because they had better outcomes for me than the special education at black and brown schools. And that separated me from my race in so many ways. Um, growing up, I was told I talk white or that um, I was I was interested in things that my black peers were not interested in because I went to school during the week as a black person in a predominantly white area and I went to church on the weekends as one of the only disabled person people in my church or at the very least visibly disabled person in my church. So I was really struck stuck between these two worlds that told me that I had to choose which identity I was to be facing them with at any given time and I no longer wanted to live in that life and say to myself you have to separate out what people want and don't want from you in any given moment. And so when I started Twitter, using Twitter and um, blogging, it was, mo to be honest, it was mostly to get more people than my mom to read my blog because she had stopped reading it. Um, but it was also to make sure that I could build community with other people that looked like me. Um, and the Internet has truly provided that for me. And I started using hashtags like CryptoVote um, and Disability Too White. CryptoVote was created by Alice Wong, Greg Baratan, uh, Andrew Pullring, and Disability Too White was created by Vilissa Thompson. And it showed me an entire community that I had missed out on my entire life. I was taught to normalize my disability. I was taught that it was not marketable for me as somebody who wanted to be employed to talk about it, to be open about it, specifically as a black disabled woman. I had been raised to say that I am a black woman first, not a black disabled person. So 
seeing a community of disabled people that were excited about who they were and were not making any apologies about it, that really is what radicalized me to be the person that I am today. And I am forever, forever thankful and grateful for it. As you, as you currently know, we are going through a very tumultuous time, especially as it, it pertains to racial dynamics, socioeconomic dynamics, um, as well as disability. The disability community has been particularly hit hard by COVID-19. People in nursing homes are dying in droves in the United States, excuse me, and around the country. And so that deeply impacts our disability community, who's been working hard for the last few decades to move away from institutional settings and congregate care settings into individualized homes and community-based services. And so when we think of the experiences that we're seeing play out on a national scale, they are no, sorry, they are no longer as, as hidden as they were. We're seeing people report on nursing home deaths and institutional deaths, and we really can no longer ignore it. Um, these experiences are systemic. The ways that racial dynamics are segregated to weed out the oppressed are very much so in our forefront. As Black disabled people, we are, we are policed disproportionately from the time we are in school. Black and brown kids are usually usually lack a diagnosis, like my story earlier, um, early on in their childhood development. So that means that when they are in school, they're diagnosed with behavior problems. They're seen as problems in the classrooms. And as Americans specifically, we have police in our classrooms that are ready to arrest children and feed them into the school to prison pipeline. 30 to 40% of people in America in jails and prisons have a disability. And that is a huge problem that nobody was willing to talk about. And not only that, but in the Black Lives Matter moment that we are currently in, disabled Black people are in a very precarious situation. We are not, no one, we are not only erased by society as disabled people as a whole, we are also uh, victims of racism, classism, and even from within our own racial community, even from Black people, our disabilities are erased as a part of the greater good. History has taught us that claiming disability as Black people is risky and dangerous. Um, from slavery, Black disabled slaves were either fed to alligators, they were, um, their, ra their rations were diminished so much that they would starve to death, or if they were very, very lucky, they were stolen by their mothers and taken to circuses and freak shows to live with those, uh, those performers and to tour the country. So we have been ostracized. We have been separated out from our communities for a very long time. And we can no longer afford to ignore disability and race and how it impacts people. And I kind of want to give you a kind of a little bit of an overview as to how ableism and disability justice frameworks inform your work. Ableism does not exist on its own. It is also a function of racism, classism, queerphobia, transphobia, and many other bigotries. When we think about how we are going to other groups in society, 
people often turn to disability and diagnoses. And you can see this particularly in the progressive space right now. If you notice, if you are on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, you are watching progressive platforms make fun of Donald Trump's disability as a way to other him, other him as somebody who's unqualified for his job. Now, he is unqualified for his job for many more reasons than that. But the message that it sends is that disabled people are not qualified to be in leadership positions. Disabled people are consistently told that we are capable of anything, that we can do anything that we want. But as soon as that impacts somebody else's life, as soon as that means that we are in leadership roles, people start to question our ability and capacity to do those things. So when we think about isms, when we think about bigotry, when we think about um, discrimination, we have to look at just how tied together to those to those institutions, ableism is. And one of the things I would like people to really start to comprehend and, di and dissect is the concept of, of capacity. A lot of people are told in the disability community that they do not have the capacity to work or to contribute or to make a difference in society in little ways. Because while we rely on inspiration point to make us feel better about disability in society, what the message is is that unless you are valued in a way in which you don't impact my life, then I don't want to see it. Disability means that you have to evaluate your own capacity and say what you want to do. Everybody can contribute in their own way. And the internet has given disabled people a tool in which to contribute to these moments in time. Um, in the 60s, the disability rights movement used um, their wheelchairs to block buses to protest discriminatory transportation practices. Now we have hashtags, we have deep conversations on politics. We call out our politicians online. They know my at on Twitter. Um, and so disabled people have been organizing, but we really have to give, get away from this idea of capacity and denigrating disabled people's contributions to movements as slacktivism because we can't go out into the street, particularly during this pandemic. So I want you to get away from that concept. I also want to get you away from the concept of intelligence. Intelligence is a very ableist concept, and we use it particularly against black and brown people. We use education as a carrot towards progress and inclusion into greater opportunities, but then we denigrate people who do not have access as less intelligent, when in reality, they just don't have as many opportunities as others. And those opportunities are given to the top and given to the privilege to succeed. So evaluate what your ideas of intelligence and capacity are in whatever movement you are building with or with different people. So I want to talk a little bit away. I want to go a little bit backwards and talk about the ways in which ableism informs other forms of bigotry and how society sees them. So if we examine all these bigotries, we see the ways that ableism further marginalize these groups. So the poor are often blamed 
for their poverty and told that they are too unintelligent to understand their own finances. People of color are told that their health outcomes are due to the inability to control their emotions and urges when it comes to food and nutrition. Women are considered too emotional in, in leadership positions. Queer and trans people are told their lifestyles are due to mental illnesses and are dangerously forced into conversion therapies and are, that are widely considered torture. So these are all the ways in which ableism is codified in the way that we interact with different marginalized groups. And so, and a lot of times in these other marginalized groups, disabled people are even further marginalized within these categories. So it's really important that we take a holistic look at the ways in which ableism informs our, our talking points, informs the way we interact with one another, and informs the way we consider um, multidimensional justice. While for the marginalized, ableism is a way to denigrate others, for white supremacy, it is a way to excuse their actions. So for times when America deals with a lot of mass violence, particularly at the hands of white supremacists and neo-Nazis, and that's what they are and that's what I will call them. Um, and so for them, ableism is a way to separate out those actions as individual rather than systemic. Many people think of it, think of it diagnosis as an individual problem. And that is what we're seeing with the COVID-19 response. That is an individual problem to be dealt with with individual strategies when we need community-based strategies. But anyways, white supremacy uses ableism to say that these people are mentally ill, they don't know what they're doing, to distract from the fact that it's a systemic issue that allows this violence to take place. And so it's basically playing a sleight of hand using disability to tell society that racism has nothing to do with the systems and institutions that society has built, but everything to do with some one person, their choices and their own diagnosis. Um, what's devastating about this moment in history, both from the perspective of racial justice and the pandemic is that above everybody else I've met, disabled people were the most prepared to meet this moment. While a lot of non-disabled people were able to coordinate um, remote working, remote organizing, disabled people had been doing that for years. And so we build community, we build community care online. So when we think about organizing, disabled people have been doing all of this community care ourselves from the get-go. And so what I encourage you to do is to, to follow disabled people on in their own spaces, like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have been building these platforms forever. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and you've just been hearing from Amani Barbaran, disability rights activist and founder of Crutches and Spice, speaking at the Virtual Progress 2020 conference. Up next, we're going to hear from Damien Griffiths. Damien is a descendant of the Waramai people. He's a leading advocate for human rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability. Damien has been a central figure in the establishment of both the Aboriginal Disability Network New South Wales and the national organisation representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disabilities and their families, the First Peoples Disability Network Australia. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast and stay tuned for Damien Griffith's speech at Progress 2020.
I thought I'd begin by telling you a bit about the First Peoples Disability Network. So we're a national organisation representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability and their families. A very unique organisation here in Australia in that we are owned and operated by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability themselves. So our board is made up of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have a range of different disabilities. Our board members include uh, Aboriginal people with physical disability, intellectual disability, acquired brain injury, uh, blind and deaf also. Um, and also our staff, we're a small secretariat and every one of our staff members either has disability themselves or a very close personal association with disability. So in a lot of ways, we're a consumer-based organisation representing the voices of our, of our own people with uh, Indigenous people with disability. So in thinking about um, the topic today and a range of different issues that are happening in the world at the moment, um, we were reflecting on, I was reflecting on what is justice exactly for Aboriginal people with disability. So justice includes the right to live free from poverty. Many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability here in Australia live in often very extreme poverty. Um, it's the right to an opportunity for employment, the right to an education. Too many of our young Aboriginal people with disability don't get the opportunity to complete an education uh, because of the lack of resources that may be available to them in the communities in which they live. It's the right to be free from discrimination. And like Amani was talking about, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability face what's referred to as intersectional discrimination. So discrimination based on their indigeneity and or disability. And that presents us an extra barrier, if you like, a double disadvantage, or if you perhaps add gender or other, uh, other aspects, it may be a triple disadvantage in many ways. But when it comes to interactions with the actual justice system itself, we at the First Peoples Disability Network are growing increasingly concerned about the growing criminalisation of disability here in Australia. And much like Amani was talking about before, there are very high rates of disability in the Aboriginal prison population across the country. Uh, and there are deeply concerning issues around the prevalence of disability amongst Aboriginal deaths in custody, for example. The Guardian newspaper reported that 42.8% of Aboriginal deaths in custody are of Aboriginal people with disability. Um, and we often see this increasing criminalisation because of the intersection between racism and ableism. And it plays out particularly for Aboriginal people that experience psychosocial disability or, or mental illness. Um, we often say in, in the First Peoples Disability Network that if you're going to have a psychotic episode, you better make it, make it on the third Tuesday of every fourth month when the mental health team's in town or you end up in the back of a paddy wagon, frankly, and that's exactly what happens. And then you may appear before a magistrate who perhaps doesn't have a great understanding of disability or may have some preconceived ideas, and you may end up, in fact, in prison. Another issue that's of very grave concern and an extraordinary violation of human rights here in Australia is the indefinite detention of Aboriginal people with disability in Australian prisons. It happens particularly in the Northern Territory in Western Australia, but not unique to those jurisdictions. 
So that results when a situation where an Aboriginal person with disability may be considered a danger to themselves or a danger to others, and they're effectively accommodated in jail. And invariably, they end up in jail for much longer periods of time than that when then perhaps if they'd pled guilty to a particular crime. And sometimes Aboriginal people with disability end up indefinitely detained for what are effectively very minor crimes. And again, this is a failure of the disability service system to provide meaningful support. But it's also about the deliberate and active attempt to remove people with disability, particularly Aboriginal people with disability from society. What we're starting to analyse further at the First Peoples Disability Network, and again goes to a bit of the issues that Imani touched on, is at the point of invasion, uh, when the English came, they brought with them a worldview of disability that was different to the Indigenous view of disability. And essentially that was about locking people up. It wasn't long before Sydney was um, being created or developed that very quickly there were institutions built. Within a matter of years, there was schools for orphans and a number of Aboriginal pe young people were placed in those schools. Or there were uh, very unfortunate terms like idiot houses created or institutions cropped up very quickly. And they still dot the landscape today here in Sydney and in fact hold some of the most prime pieces of real estate. And they're usually sandstone buildings that sit either on top of hills or next to rivers. Uh, and that was about removing people from society. That is in complete conflict with the Indigenous view on disability, which I'll explain briefly to you in a minute. So when it comes to these issues of indefinite detention, the over-representation of Aboriginal people with disability in Australian prisons, We've taken these issues to the United Nations on a number of occasions. And Australia, frankly, stands condemned in relation to these issues. We've taken these matters before the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disability. We've taken it also to the UN Committee Against Torture and Inhumane Treatment. And on every occasion, the UN has been uh, damning, frankly, of Australia's performance with this in this regard. What is extraordinary and deeply frustrating for all of us at FPDN and a lot of disability act activists in this space is there's really been no activity taken by any government really of any great note around the country other than some discussions around law reform, which is clearly needed. There's no doubt there is a technical aspect to it. But actually the deeper issue is why these things happen. Why as a society there's uh, these active uh, pro practices which mean the removal of people, often people that uh, shouldn't be in that situation in the first place. So I guess what um, I was anxious to also inform people of today, that it's really important to note that in traditional language, there is no comparable word for disability. So this is a wonderful thing in that in Indigenous Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people historically were not labelled. It's more come as you are. And this is a wonderful thing. And disability tends to be talked about appropriately in an impairment-based way. So brother there doesn't hear too well. Cousin's a bit slower than everyone else. Uncle has a bit of trouble moving around. Not said in a pejorative way, but in, said in such a way that we need to recognise, we need to provide particular supports perhaps for that person 
with disability in our community to participate. This is a profound but simple in many ways uh, thing to understand. Uh, like I said before, when the Western approach, when the invaders came, they brought with them their worldview, which is inherently about either locking people with disability away or people with disability were often subjects or uh, of ridicule or objects of charity, perhaps. We know this is profound because uh, there has been a recent discovery at the very significant archaeological site in New South Wales, Lake Mungo, where there's been the discovery of a single footprint and it appears there's a stick and the footprint has been dated at at least 25,000 years old. So that is a, a footprint of a male, an Aboriginal male who, with one leg who was participating in community life. So there's always been roles and always been ways to support and value the roles of people with disability in Indigenous Australia. So I guess I wanted to finish with the, perhaps it's a plea in a way, in recognition that in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia, we are the thought leaders on inclusion. We have always practiced inclusion. Inclusion is innate in Aboriginal Australia. There's no doubt there are issues and there's no doubt there are situations where our own people with disability face particular challenges and there is a real challenge in having the voices of first people's disability heard within the wider first people's movement because of a number of conflicting priorities so I don't want to romanticize it but the reality is that we need the system to adjust its thinking to recognize that we are the thought leaders on inclusion we've always had ways of supporting our community members with disability and the system needs to change its thinking. Like so many things in the world at the moment, it, things, it seems things are basically upside down. And I guess the only other thing I'd finish on is that well-known international disability rights mantra of nothing about us without us, that very simple proposition that a person with disability themselves knows what's best for themselves. Thank you. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and you've just been hearing from Damien Griffiths from the First People's Disability Network, speaking at the Virtual Progress 2020 conference in June this year about lessons from the disability justice movement. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Authors of a new report, A Constellation of Circumstances, The Drivers of Women's Increasing Rates of Remand in Victoria, urge a review of Victoria's strict bail laws, stating that decreases in prisoner numbers observed during the COVID-19 pandemic should be sustained and extended into the future. The report published by Fitzroy Legal Service and the Trobe Centre for Health, Law and Society examined data from the Bail and Remand Court and analysed court observations and found that policing has become tougher under Victoria's new bail regime, significantly impacting on the rate of women being remanded. Today I speak with Dr Emma Russell, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, 
and Jill Faulkner, Manager of Women Transforming Justice, a program of Fitzroy Legal Service. The contents of this interview do not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Welcome, Emma and Jill. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks, Carly. Thanks for the introduction. So, Emma, can you first start by telling listeners how this report came about? Yeah, sure. Um, So, as you mentioned, um, the report came out of a research project um, conceived and conducted collaboratively between Fitzroy Legal Service myself at La Trobe University and um, two other academics at Deakin University, Bree Carlton and Danielle Tyson. Um, so the main um, reason why we did this research was because of the significant growth in women's rates of remand in Victoria. So over the past five years, um, you know, the the rate at which women were going into custody unsentenced um, was outstripping, the increase was outstripping that of men. So it was a very uh, gendered increase. And yeah, over the past decade, um, the number of women entering prison in Victoria each month had tripled. So a very strong trajectory of growth that's very gendered and very racialized as well because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women um, are significantly overrepresented um, in the prison system as a whole, but also specifically on remand. So Aboriginal women are the only cohort in, pr- in um, prison in Victoria who are more likely to be inside unsentenced than sentenced. Um, so we wanted to understand a bit more um, in detail about some of the, the mechanisms and the issues that were going on Um, you know, on the ground in the courtroom as to why women were going into custody before they were being sentenced. Mm. And a major focus of this report is on the effect that the 2018 changes had um, in the Victorian Bail Act. So can you talk a bit more about these changes? Yeah, so um, the 2018 changes to the Bail Act in Victoria um, came about um, following a um, review of the Bail Act um, conducted by Justice Coghlan um, in the aftermath of um, the horrific Burke Street Mall attack, which occurred in January 2017. Um, where six people were killed in um, Burke Street in the Melbourne CBD. Um, And this prompted reform to the Bail Act because um, the perpetrator of that attack was um, on bail at the time. So there was a lot of media outrage and public outrage and concern and fear um, that really made the Bail Act a target for reform in the aftermath. Um, but this, mean, this, this meant that um, the, these changes to the Bail Act were really driven by a very, very extreme um, and exceptional example of violence. So not um, the kind of, uh, kind of offences or, or crimes that are usually being dealt with um, or typically being dealt with under the Bail Act, but a very high profile and exceptional case of horrific violence. Um, So that meant that the changes to the Bail Act were really in a lot of ways driven by emotion and fear and meant that it was 
going to be a very kind of law and order or tough on crime response. And the, the main sort of change that happened was that um, more people are being put into the reverse onus position for bail. So instead of um, the assumption being that someone will be released on bail into the community after they're arrested for an offence or um, a series of offences, um, the reverse onus means that the assumption is that they will go into prison on remand um, and they have to make an argument as to why they shouldn't. So they either have to show um, a, com a compelling reason why they shouldn't, shouldn't go into custody unsentenced while awaiting um, their hearings or exceptional circumstances. And so the people having to meet those thresholds to be released on bail, um, those, those nets have really been widened. So um, when we were speaking to interviews as part of, we went, sorry, when we were speaking to lawyers um, in interviews as part of this study, um, the example that kept coming up and up again and again was that prior to these 2018 reforms being implemented, um, people having to show exceptional circumstances as to why they shouldn't um, go on, go into prison on remand, um, was people charged with murder or with treason or drug trafficking, um, of like commercial quantities of drugs or terrorism offences. So a, a, a small number of very, very serious offences. Um, but then after these reforms, um, there's sort of some technical changes that mean that a lot more people now have to show exceptional circumstances. So if you're um, accused of committing a Schedule 2 offence while on bail for a Schedule 1 or 2 offence, um, it basically means that um, if you're offending repeatedly and being granted bail and then breaching that bail or failing to appear in court, um, then you're committing an offence against the Bail Act, which then can basically lift you up or elevate you to this absolute highest threshold um, for being granted bail, which is exceptional circumstances. Um, so I guess lawyers like were consistently saying that following these reforms, that they've noticed a lot more women going um, into the cells in the, in the magistrate's court um, for offences that really don't warrant a term of imprisonment. So really, um, really kind of crimes of survival, um, not uh, like things like shop steal or yeah, shoplifting or, um, uh, you know, a breach of bail, which can land them in, in custody, whereas previously they might not have um, gone into prison on remand. Yeah, and I think that this report also highlights some of the really like negative impacts that these laws have created where now you speak about um, women spending dead time and then also actually pleading guilty for offences that they might not otherwise want to plead guilty for. Can you expand a bit more on that aspect of the report? Yeah, I mean, those issues that you mentioned, the issue of dead time and um the kind of implicit uh, pressure to finalise matters. Yeah, there's a really kind of um, like perverse justice outcomes because it, it means that um, 
you know, I guess the, the system isn't working in a way that it aspires to work, which is, you know, um, I guess basic principles of proportionality um, or, you know, the presumption of innocence, all that, those kinds of things that are sort of meant to be the bedrock, right, of, of a legal system. But um, in this case, it suggests that um, those things, those kind of principles are being thwarted. So, um, you know, because of these really high thresholds um, for bail that um, more and more women are finding themselves having to meet um, in the courtroom, um, one, one option is to simply plead guilty at the outset um, and be sentenced straight away um, rather than trying to get out on bail so that a lawyer can work with you to prepare your case and that and police will gather evidence and all that kind of stuff. Um, so one lawyer that we spoke to um, raised the issue that, um, you know, this really means that police aren't being held to full scrutiny. So police can lay charges, arrest someone, and then if they're in the except exceptional circumstances um, category um, and instead, you know, that, that um, turns someone off applying for bail, um, then they're just... They, and so they just finalise the matter, then the police are never actually going to be held to account to prove the charges that they've laid. So the, lo the level of accountability on police um, is much lower if matters are just being finalised at the first instance. Um, and, of course, you know, there can be some advantages um, or you can understand why people might just want to finalise their matters at the first instance to avoid going into custody. That makes a lot of sense. Um, but then, you know, it has these flow-on effects um, where police aren't being held to account. Um, and then, you know, the dead time is, you know, because remand um, is, is really increasing um, and more so following these 2018 reforms, people will spend more time um, in custody unsentenced than they'll ever receive um, for their sentence when it finally is um, heard before the judge. So um, someone might be in on remand for seven days because they've been in the exceptional circumstances category um, and, you know, it just takes a while for matters, matters to be heard. And then when the judge finally does look at um, their charges, um, the judge will say, well, this didn't even warrant time in custody or, you know, I... I would only sentence you to one day in custody, but someone spent seven days. They've just spent all this time um, in prison when they never would have um, received that length of time in prison on a sentence. Mm. And now, Jill, I want to go to you. Um, and can you speak about the devastating effects that women entering custody can have, even if it's on remand and even if it's for a short period of time? Absolutely, Kelly. So I think, you know, when we look at the experiences of women who are presenting in the cells and applying for, for bail, um, you know, these women, it's not that they have discreetly offended. Um, these women have often got histories, you know, where they've been responding to family violence, where they might have had their children 
removed. Um, often there are mental health issues. More predominantly, these women are also homeless. So even a short time in custody means that women's lives are completely disrupted. Um, and so uh, having issues in your life that compound the challenges that kind of impoverish women, that make women more vulnerable, means that there's such a disruption to their life. Often we see women whose children are then actually removed, um, you know, when they've been the primary carer. We may see women who have um, low level mental health distress, you know, whose mental health issues it become much more exaggerated um, and much more debilitating. Um, it could be that women have been responding to violence over, you know, a cumulative time. There's no relief for that, you know, like custody is not, um, custody is not a rehabilitative process that women, particularly going into remand, um, are generally not eligible for programs, etc. Their life is disruptive. They've got, you know, states of ill ease and there's really nothing that's rehabilitative or responsive um, to them in that particular stage. And then there's the trauma beyond their own interpersonal trauma of being incarcerated. And there's very little kind of acknowledgement of the traumatic effects of incarceration, what that means for women. And yet we disrupt women's lives. Women suffer overwhelming results as um, a consequence to incarceration. And there's very little kind of opportunities for women to make sense of that, to make meaning of that. Our service system generally can't respond in ways that are transformative and healing for these women. So it's not just that women also kind of suffer these experiences, but also their children in terms of being removed. And I actually want to go back to that point that you made, that there is this perception that people who experience the world in ways that are often diagnosed as mental illnesses are better off in custody. And that was a really big point that was made in the report. And, um, Lawyer 10, as it's stated in the report, reflected if fair, so women are really, really unwell, then often we find that the mental health services are saying, well, they're better off in custody because there's so little guarantee in the community that they're going to be treated or admitted if failed to an ambulance for inpatient assessment. It just seems like a real indictment on the mental health system, that it's better for them to be in custody or that it is what the mental health services are telling us. Jill, can you comment a little bit more on that? Um, yes, I, personally, I find it an outrageous circumstance that we would be advocating for women to be criminalised because our service system is, doesn't have the capacity to respond. You know, I find that outrageous. Um, and I think, you know, like one of the things I observed um, in the magistrate's court was that particular magistrates had a propensity to refer a woman for a treatment order. Um, and so there were numbers of women who were uh, given bail on the condition that they, you know, that they travel via ambulance for um, an assessment in a mental health institution. You know, often they may be assessed and they may well be medicated, but they will also be released quite quickly, you know, back into a community where there are very little systems and structures or safety, you know, which just exacerbates um, their condition. You know, that we would think that um, incarcerating someone uh, in a prison is somehow uh, going to re be responsive to their mental health distress, you know, doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I think um, it, what we're doing is we're criminalising mental health. So we're criminalising poverty, we're criminalising mental health. I think that's completely 
unacceptable. And if I also look at the experiences of women um, who are incarcerated, often there's an experience of early childhood trauma. It might be sexual abuse or violence or some kind of neglect with direct links to further re-victimization, you know, through family and domestic violence. Um, those situations, you know, we come to know as complex developmental trauma and the impact of trauma on women's lives is that, you know, their behaviour becomes a reflection of trying to respond as a survivor to these overwhelming experiences. So it seems inhumane for me, to me, for us to consider that criminalising these women, incarcerating them, is any kind of just response. What these women need is safety, security, predictability, um, and that occurs when you have your own home, when you have the kind of support that is non-judgmental, but that's prepared to be alongside you, to, sort of, to support you in moments of distress, to make meaning of that. Not incarceration, which is often isolating. And what I notice is that when someone's distress becomes elevated in Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, for example, they may well be referred to the Marmac unit, but if their behaviour um, is outside of a range that's considered um, appropriate, they'll then find themselves in lockdown and management. I don't think that kind of isolation is in any way reparative. No, absolutely not. And I mean, I'm continuously confused with that notion that, yeah, people who are working through their like mental health are better off in custody because a lot of people are spending short periods of time in prison. So like, of course, we need to be working on these solutions outside of prisons. Um, this is this notion, yeah, that people can go into prison and they'll be fixed. It's corrective. And we know that that's not the case at all. We just heard part one of a conversation that I had with Emma Russell, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, and Jill Faulkner, Manager of Women Transforming Justice, a program of Fitzroy Legal Service, who are speaking about a new report, A Constellation of Circumstances, the Drivers of Women's Increasing Rates of Remand in Victoria. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. And now we're going to head into part two of a conversation that I have with Emma Russell, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, and Jill Faulkner, Manager of Women Transforming Justice, a program of Fitzroy Legal Service, who is speaking about a new report, A Constellation of Circumstances, the Drivers of Women's Increasing Rates of Remand in Victoria. And now I actually want to go back to Emma and to speak about police discretion and bail. So there was a part of the report that says since 2018, the Bail Act provides only for the court to grant bail for people required to meet the exceptional circumstances test, except in cases where the person is Aboriginal, a vulnerable adult or a child. And this means that if the accused is a member of one of these groups or if the accused is only required to show compelling reasons, police can still grant bail from the police station. Yeah, so the law does provide police with quite a bit of discretion in terms of um, 
yeah, bailing people from the police station once they're arrested. Um, but what lawyers reported um, observing since the 2018 changes to the Bail Act is that um, police are much more hesitant to bail people direct from the police station um, and will be are more likely to just bring people into the court for a magistrate to make a decision. So they'll remand people, bring them into the basement cells um, at the Melbourne Magistrates Court, for example, um, where they'll await um, making a bail application in front of a magistrate. Um, and, you know, so they police do have to have some understanding of which test within the Bail Act someone will have to meet in order to be granted bail. Um, but lawyers perceived a just, A, a kind of general confusion amongst police around what their capacities were to bail people from the police station, B, a real kind of risk-averse or overly cautious approach, particularly following um, the increased scrutiny upon bail practices after um, the Burke Street Mall attack in, in 2017, so that um, because criminal justice actors like police, like magistrates, etc., are scared or worried about making that a wrong decision, right, or a decision that means that they've granted someone bail who then goes on to commit, um, you know, a really atrocious act or horrific act. Um, instead, they'll just do what they perceive as erring on the side of caution and just remand someone into custody. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, that one particular case um, of Gargasoulis, um committing the homicides in Burke Street Mall, because that was such an exceptional and, you know, horrific instance of violence, um, it's really shaped um, decision-making and lawmaking across the whole system of bail and remand that impacts thousands and thousands of people, um, many of whom are engaging in very low-level kind of survival based um, offending, right, that isn't a major threat to community safety, but um, the trend has been to move away from treating imprisonment as a last resort and towards, um, I guess, putting people in custody as a way to um, try and prevent crime, right, which isn't meant to be or wasn't traditionally um, a meant to be a function of bail um, or bail and remand, but now um, everyone, it seems, is just much more risk-averse. And one thing that really gets lost in that kind of trend is that um, the harms of imprisonment or the harms of putting someone um, in custody unsentenced, um, they're really, that's really obscured or really um, deprioritized. And, you know, as Jill just outlined, it can be incredibly harmful and impactful and traumatic, um, especially for women, as we looked at in this study. Um, but that isn't prioritized in the way that it should be, um, in the way that, that police and um, the courts are making decisions about bail and remand. Um, and, Almost, almost every time um, 
in the courtroom when we were observing women apply for bail, police would oppose um, women's bail applications. So in 26 out of the 29 bail applications that women made um, that we observed, um, police would be arguing that the woman needs to go into custody, um, even in cases where it was, you know, very um, low-level survival-based offending. And now can either of you speak about the impact that COVID-19 has had on bail applications? Um, well, our observations in the court ceased as COVID-19 came in, but in terms of the work of Women Transforming Justice, um, our partnership between Fitzroy Legal Service, LACWA and Flat Out means that LACWA and Flat Out have been engaged in a legal, non-legal collaboration, um, really targeting um, supporting women to apply for bail. And so as COVID-19 came down, there was a huge adaptability and flexibility to trying to get as many women out of prison who were on remand as we could. And I think currently the women's prison population in Dangerfulness Frost Centre is at a level where it was four years ago. So a number of women being able to have been granted bail in the community. However, as that time extends, you know, women who are really struggling with a, with a plethora of kind of challenges in their world, it becomes much more uh, difficult to try and support them to be able to have some kind of stability um, in the community while we wait for, you know, the rescheduling of matters. Um, and when, when someone doesn't have access to safe and secure housing, I think everything else is premised on that. Um, so certainly, yes, um, we've been able to get a lot more women out on bail, um, but it also has meant that there's an extra struggle around trying to develop some stability in those women's lives, particularly when also services tend to have retreated um, from the service system. So there are far less supports available um, that would have been possible pre-COVID. Yeah, I'll just add as well, like, as Jill mentioned, um, the women's prison population has declined since the declaration of the state of emergency in Victoria um, in March. So, you know, in just a matter of months, the numbers of women in prison have dropped by 27%. Um, like at the end of May, um, the numbers were 27% lower than they were at the end of May last year. So in a very short amount of time, um, the system has been able to um, really respond um, to, you know, the very serious concerns of um, a COVID-19 outbreak occurring inside prison and the risk that that would place incarcerated uh, people in or the risky situation, um, but also um, particularly the impacts of um sustained lockdowns for people in prison due to the risk of COVID-19 and the absence of visits. So what we've seen in the last few months is um, what we haven't been seeing at all over the past couple of years is a real recognition um, in the courts, it seems, of the real harms and traumas of incarceration. And so more of an erring on the side of it's safer and a better option to uh, release women back to the community. Whereas, you know, as I've spoke about just before, 
um, the last few years has really seen a sh- had really seen a shift the opposite way that oh it's safer and a better option for society to just keep remanding these people um, because you know that's the more cautious option so um, what I think uh, is important about these recent shifts towards um, towards less remand um, and less incarceration is that um, it's an opportunity to uh, recognise that incarceration is harmful, that it's risky, that it impacts people's health, it impacts um, their well-being, um, it absolutely shortens someone's lifespan and, you know, there's a body of evidence on that, on the long-term health impacts of incarceration and that we should be coming up with solutions in the community that mean um, that women and men and children uh, don't need to go into custody in the first place, that we can, um, we can create support networks in the community and um, our priority is to keep families together um, and, you know, keep people housed, get them the mental health um, and drug and alcohol support they need and so on. And so while we don't know, you know, a huge amount of detail of what's been going on in the courts um, during COVID, because as Jill mentioned, we did stop our field work um, when the state of emergency was declared. Um, the general trend in numbers shows that there has been a real shift away from using incarceration as a first resort and towards recognising that it's it's really dangerous for individuals and communities. So we absolutely urge, um, I guess, the government, the broader services sector to really build on this um, opportunity for decarceration, so lessening prison numbers, um, reducing the number of people going into prison on remand, keeping people outside of prison, because this um, pandemic has really shown that it's possible where there's the will and the recognition. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you so much, Jill and Emma, for joining us um, on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Carly. Just then, I spoke with Dr Emma Russell, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, and Jill Faulkner, Manager of Women Transforming Justice, a program of Fitzroy Legal Service, about a new report titled A Constellation of Circumstances, The Drivers of Women's Increasing Rates of Remand in Victoria. This report urges a review of Victoria's strict bail laws and states that decreases in prisoner numbers observed during the COVID-19 pandemic should be sustained and extended into the future. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We now go to an interview with Tabitha Lean. Tabitha is a Gunditjmara woman living on Ghana country. She's also a formerly incarcerated person and a vocal advocate for incarcerated people. Hey, Tabitha, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you mind um, briefly letting listeners know a little bit about yourself before we jump into the conversation? Yeah, sure. Look, I'll start by acknowledging that the land I stand on today is the land of the Ghana people. And one of the things I'm trying to talk about is the fact that I have the opportunity to do this work in this space and even talking to you in this space on this country is leveraged of the dispossession of the Ghana people from their country. 
Um, I am, as you said, formerly incarcerated. I spent two years inside Adelaide Women's Prison and Adelaide Pre-Release Centre and approximately two years on home detention. And I'll be tethered to the system for about three years. Yeah, a real, a real journey as, as I've been following through your Twitter feed and you've been doing a lot of incredible advocacy through there and through your writing as well. Um, but this past week, um, you know, we've had some serious concerns seeing COVID-19 actually enter the Victorian prison system. And so first there was a confirmed case at the Melbourne Remand Centre and second, a staff member at the Malmesbury Youth Justice Centre also tested positive for COVID-19. So this is obviously really concerning and something that you foreshadowed and raised as a serious issue when we spoke in April. Um, so could you speak to some of your concerns around this? Certainly, and you're right, we warned of this. We lobbied to free people. Many of us prepared and proposed detailed decarceration plans, but we had not one compassionate or preventative release in this country, in my view, that speaks volumes about the disposability of human lives behind bars. The reality is prisons like cruise ships are vectors for infectious diseases. And what we know about the population inside is that we are a vulnerable population just based on who we are and where we're located. Prison, people in prison have a much older health age and the health problems we face are substantial. So what we know is that being in prison during a pandemic could be literally what brings the death penalty back in this country. So I'm extremely concerned about it. I'm concerned because I think prisons and other custodial settings are an integral part of the public health response. And the fact that we've now seen COVID, well, actually, what we have is two confirmed cases. I suspect that there are other cases. I suspect that some people aren't being tested as well. There's no transparency across this, and it might sound a little conspiracy theory, but I believe this is actually really probably just the tip of the iceberg. But the reality is we have these two confirmed cases, and right now I think governments across this country should be moving to release people. So there are there are ways that we could be doing this. There's you know there's um we could be releasing people onto early parole. We could be releasing people onto home detention. We should be immediately releasing all young people into houses where that's appropriate. Um, we should be releasing elderly and the pregnant. And I mean I I'm pro releasing everyone, but I accept that there needs to be a staged approach to this. But certainly I couldn't imagine being in prison during a pandemic and the fear that they must be feeling knowing that prison health is, in, in, is inadequate normally to handle um, chronic health conditions, let alone during a pandemic. Absolutely. And um, something that we discussed in our last conversation as well was around you know, access to health care and access to sanitation within the prison system. Um, so maybe could you comment on some of the concerns around you know, people's access to protective gear, to, to sanitary equipment, um, you know, in, in regular conditions, let alone during COVID-19? Sure. Look, what we're being told is that people have access to soap and cleaning supplies. But I can tell you from my experience, when I was in mainstream units of the prison, that was two cakes of soap per 12 girls. That's extraordinary. You certainly can buy soap from the canteen list, but without money for commissary items, you're not able to do that. So you rely on prison issue supplies. The other thing that prisons are saying is that the people have access to cleaning supplies. Now, again, when I was in mainstream units, the cleaning supplies were locked in a cupboard and relied on the, pr the prison officer having time 
during that day to give you access to it. Um, prison visits have just reopened in South Australia um, and there does not appear to be screening of visitors going in there. Um, and I know that from experience from family members just as recently. The other thing is that there's talk about people being quarantined when they're brought into prison, but we have evidence from people that we've spoken to in South Australian prisons that people are being brought, if they're being brought straight in from court to prison, there is that they are not being isolated or screened. They're going straight into the prison population. So the reality is this could increase as we're seeing the second wave here in some states. The potential is, is huge, really, for devastating outcomes for people. And what we know is that Aboriginal people are more likely to become victim of this pandemic because of our health and comorbidities related to chronic disease. Yeah, and I think um, a very important thing to intersect there is thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and what's happening now and thinking about Aboriginal people's access to healthcare within the carceral system is already so compromised by, you know, settler colonialism, white supremacy, and the way that that impacts on people's access to healthcare. Um, so maybe we can turn to talking specifically about how this is uh, impacting upon Aboriginal people who are currently incarcerated, but also how Aboriginal community members outside are kind of working to advocate um, on, on behalf of people that are, that are still inside. Mm. Look, I think um, I think we're at a crucible moment within the movement. I think abolition has become the preeminent demand of the movement. I don't think we are new to the work on abolition. Certainly, Aboriginal people have been fighting the carceral system for 232 years, but we are true to this movement. I think. Um, for me, I am solely focused on abolition as a vision of liberation for our people in this country. I think the goal of eliminating prisons, policing and surveillance is an opportunity for us to radically reimagine a future free of prisons and punishment. I think that is the only way to stop black lives being taken in custody. I, I can't see a way that we can cut the corners of the system. We have been this system has been subject to so many reforms over hundreds of years, and we're not seeing systems change. We still have an anti-black, racist, misogynist, transphobic system, which is killing people. So I think that we need to dismantle the policies, practices and institutions that make people disposable. Something I talk about, it's my Twitter, Twitter handle as well, disposable human, is that in this society right across the world we create people who are disposable we say right now people aren't safe enough to be in the community so we're going to dispose of them into prisons in our schools we say to some children you're not okay we can't have you in the school because of your behavior so we dispose of them by expelling them i i, I kind of think that abolition is a movement about love it's about saying that no one is disposable no one is a non-person everyone has value it's about how we, we work to create safe and good relationships with each other that means we can go forward. But we've really internalised this kind of punitive system where we think that the only way to get justice is by imposing the same sort of pain onto the person who's perpetrated that pain. It, it's just, it's cruelty and it's not working. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think... Um, 
it's really important to sort of harness the momentum that's been building up around abolition and around actually having serious conversations about what it means to defund the police, what it means to move away from systems of incarceration. So you used the word decarceration earlier on um, in the conversation. And for listeners who aren't quite familiar with that, could you maybe define that term and explain a little bit about what that might mean in the Australian context? So for me, I see decarceration as literally the opposite of incarceration. I think it, we could look at it quite simply as that instead of incarcerating people, we need to free the people we've got now. We need to free ourselves as a society to reimagine what justice looks like. Right now, justice looks like taking someone to court and locking them away. That, that doesn't feel like justice to me. So decarceration for me is about imagining it well i mean i think it's about just dis dismantling systems that currently are not serving us and reimagining what justice looks like and, and the thing is people always say to me like as an abolitionist well then what's the alternative what you know what, what are you going to replace police with what are you going to replace prisons with and i think that's the wrong place to start that conversation because i don't think that after we decarcerate that we're going to just replace systems so there's been some talk about replacing police with social workers. We're not talking about just taking one oppressive institution and replacing it with another. The whole idea of decarcerating and abolition is to start to get really imaginative about what we want to see the future look like. I think Aboriginal people have a little bit easier um, time of imagining this because we remember we can carry within our genetic material times past where we existed before police and prisons and incarceration. I think that we are, the, the solutions for all of this is found at the margins and given we sit at the margins, <laughs> I think the solutions sit with us. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, this, this came up um, in a conversation at a Black Lives Matter seminar that um, was held last week at the Melbourne Law School. And Amanda Porter said something quite similar to that. It was just that you know, prisons haven't actually been around for a very long time in this country when we think about it. That's a that's a colonial innovation that, that came in with the advent of colonization. Um, so of course there's so much potential to, to move towards something different rather than looking to replace. Um, so one, one last sort of question on this, um, and this is sort of throwing in that curveball that everybody likes to to throw in about trying to draw a distinction between violent and nonviolent offenders. I'm saying offenders in, in, in the in the parlance of people who make these arguments um, when considering things like prioritization of release during COVID-19 and what's so problematic about that kind of argument. I it upsets me when people make these distinctions, but I think as a society, we're really good at establishing these binaries, you know, good, bad, violent, nonviolent, white collar, blue collar, high risk, low risk. We need to stop legitimizing incarceration for one group while advocating against it for another. It's not helpful and it divides us. And even as someone who has a criminal record, I never announce myself as being a non-violent offender or a white-collar offender. I don't want to be separated from my brothers and sisters inside. So the goal of abolition is not to identify the good, the good guys or the people who don't deserve to be in prison. It is at all times to reject the logic and practice of criminalisation overall. Because what criminalisation does, it says that an enormous number of black people, 
poor people, people with illness must be sequestered away into punishment chambers in order for us all to be safe. That's that creation of disposable people. And when we use that binary of non-violent, violent, we're saying that one group, that one group deserves more humanity than the other. And I can't understand how we would be okay with that. The other thing is I suspect the call to release non-violent or low-risk people is a well-intentioned demand because it seemingly asks for little. But I think that we should not just ask what we think people in power are likely to grant. That shouldn't be the basis of our demand. So we, we can't start off with that question of what do we think we can get. We should go, what do we want to see and let's push for that. Um, and I think about not pre-compromising yourself, making no compromises in here because you're, you, you're not making compromises that don't have an impact. We're actually com compromising people's lives and I don't think any of us have the ability to do that or right to do that. So I think we can't, we can't let our vision of freedom be constrained by the, the people who make freedom seem impossible, if that makes sense. We, we need to decide what we want and what we want to see and what we think is humane and what represents humanity and go for that and bring people along on the journey, make space for people in this movement. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really powerful message to, to actually um, be more expansive in, in what we're asking for and, and reach for what we want rather than creating policy problems that we then have to fix later down the line when we realize that the reform wasn't good enough. Um, so is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to raise before we wrap up? Well, I want to say the other thing um, about abolition work is about looking within yourself, around you and beyond you and working to even abolish systems within yourself and in your life that are colonial or oppressive. I think abolition work starts at home. It's about how we spend our time and how we police ourselves and others. So whilst my focus is entirely on the state and abolishing that system, I'm also really starting to look in terms of my own life and would encourage other people to as well on how you can use those abolition principles that are really grounded in love and respect and care for other people in your own life as well. Because I think if we start at home, we can make it more broadly out into community. Absolutely. And that's a beautiful reminder, I think, for the, the sort of internal work that we need to do to transform society um, in a way that makes prisons obsolete. Um, so uh, finally, where can listeners find you online and learn some more? And do you have any causes that you'd like to promote um, while we're chatting? Look, I think um, I would like to promote that people support all of the families who are fighting for justice that have lost their family through deaths in custody. Sisters Inside has the Free Her campaign, raising money to free Aboriginal women who are being incarcerated for not paying fines. And there's numerous Aboriginal organisations that people can support community-controlled organisations doing really good work in this space. Um, I write a lot on Twitter, as you said, so um, my handle is at HabitatTabs, and um, you'd find my, my work online as well just by Googling my name. You'll also find a lot of horrible stuff written about me, but <laughs> look for the good stuff because there's always one more side to every story. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us again. And we'll link to all of those resources in the, in the show notes and promo. And yeah, thank you again. Well, thank you for having me on for this opportunity to spread the good word. If you're just tuning in, 
That was an interview with Tabitha Lane, who's a Good Tomorrow woman and a formerly incarcerated person who now advocates on behalf of people that are caught in the colonial carceral system in so-called Australia. We discussed the need for abolition and decarceration and the issue of COVID-19 entering the prison system. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. And I think it's time to head into a track. So this one is a new one by Sampa the Great featuring Crown. Time's up. And there is a language warning with this song. Yeah, time's up, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, it's our mature black excellence. Don't sit next to us. Lay down a script to job bless. Got invest in this black face industry. Line don't invest in me. Only want the money if I bash like history. In the industry, I'm not a slave on a record that rose brave. Call it blessings, a cute angle out the rat race. I keep from going under time. Think of a family's holding the spears. Exception is equity used. To buy your melody, all I hear. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, scheme and it's a killer. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, kill dream of a dreamer. Ice in the industry, scheme and it's a killer. Is a master plan to break you. I'm the scheme, you're the schemer. Time's up, black republic. We're on my work to publish. How many times I inspired your rhymes and you would love this? We the inspiration, we the motivation. Take ideas, then you be shelling. Evaluation, the hourglass, I'm a Crack of the fat of the cream, the black of the talent, I'm taking matters in hand. I'd rather challenge the industry, gonna be nitty, but in my feminist and me searching for their diversity. Now. All I see is a bunch of mechanical breakdown. Do it till the planet to break down. On a mission to free ourselves, verbally medicated, put on the shelf with no for sale. Neither asking for help, and I ain't asking for help. Not asking for help, we know for sale. Not asking for help, not I to get you on one wage. We just searching for stuff. Go fuck yourself, fuck, fuck the game, fuck, fuck the plane, fuck the audience, fuck the dance, fuck the list, fuck the RBRs. Seen the industry kill dream of a dreamer. Cause I've seen the industry kill dreams in a dreamer. And now I've seen the industry kill dreams of a dreamer. And now I've seen the industry scheme and it's a killer. And now I've seen the industry kill dream of a dreamer. And now I've seen the industry kill dreams of a dreamer. And now I've seen the industry scheme and it's a killer. It's a master plan of records on the scheme. They're the And just then we heard Time's Up by Sampa the Great featuring Crown. So that was a massive show, as usual. Uh, we started off hearing from Imani Barbarin and Damian Griffiths from Virtual Progress 2020, uh, who spoke about vital lessons from the disability justice movement. We then heard an interview with Emma Russell, who's a senior lecturer in crime, justice, and legal studies at La Trobe University, and Jill Faulkner, who's the manager of Women Transforming Justice, about the new report, A Constellation of Circumstances, the Drivers of Women's Increasing Rates of Rebound in Victoria.
And finally, we heard an interview with Tabitha Lean, who's a Gunachamara woman and vocal advocate for incarcerated people and also a formerly incarcerated person herself about the dangers of COVID-19 in Australian prisons and the urgent need to abolish the prison industrial complex and decarcerate. So that's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Join us again next week. And now we go to Lost in Science. <laughs>